Welcome to the Keystone Kickoff Show, brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome to the Keystone Kickoff Show. I'm Jim Galanti along with Thomas Frank Carr. T. Frank, how are we doing this week? Doing great. Uh, It's the week of press conferences, I I guess. We had uh, the Peach Bowl press conference on Monday. Friday is the actual Bowl Media Day. So lots of talking, lots of anticipation, and we're kind of in that middle section of, you know, sorting things out, figuring out what's going on with uh, the Nittany Lions before the bowl game. Very good. And over the next couple weeks, we'll get really get into Ole Miss and that Peach Bowl matchup. Still a lot of other news going on. Penn State fans, we're all still recovering, reacting to the fact that Manny Diaz, defensive coordinator, has moved on to Duke. Mm-hmm. And I think as as he's made his way out the door, uh, T. Frank, I'd like to get from you kind of your take. He was here two years. Yeah. I was a big Manny Diaz guy. Legitimate? Yeah, I'm annoyed, honestly, uh, because his defense is hard to learn and it took me two years to learn it. And now all that information is useless. Like, I don't have anything to do with it anymore. I'm not going to be following Duke in the future. But uh, yeah, that was, I think, the journey for me was understanding uh, how his defense worked. And honestly, like when I first watched stuff from Miami and watched how the defense operated and went, this is a really risky defense. The way that, um, you know, they play press man coverage, they blitz a lot, they bring a lot of guys um, uh, towards the line of scrimmage. The amount of space it created in the secondary never really hurt Penn State all that much. And I think that that's just, it speaks to the talent Penn State had, but also to the the way the defense, I think from uh, the perspective of Manny knows what he's doing, with that particular scheme, one of the things I came to learn was I, I, I need to look at this and maybe I won't now, but uh, they must have led the country in three man pass patterns, because when you bring that much pressure, the natural thing for the defense or for the offense is to get defensive and to, to bring tight ends in and to have extra blockers. And uh, it kind of created this vicious cycle where they they are very aggressive. So you bring guys in to block. And then when you bring guys into block, it triggers linebackers to blitz in this defense so that you get a lot of, you know, three man pass patterns and Penn State's able to play man coverage with a safety and do a lot of different things from a pressure perspective. That is just it, it, it was really it's a really well thought out defense. Um, and then the real beauty of it is the, the things that normal fans can't see because you don't get to see the all 22 view when when Penn State was on and hitting up front on the defensive line with all of their defensive line movement it was really uh, a ballet of brutality at times where you've got guys that are in sync and moving and twisting around each other and all of these coordinated movements that landed them uh, into great positions to make plays so just generally Uh, I have a lot of respect for Manny Diaz as a coach. I have a lot of respect for him as a uh, football mind. And, you know, Penn State got, I think, two of the best years of defensive coordinating they've had under James Franklin. And let me just ask you about his scheme. I had one of our listeners sent. uh, He was critical of me for my Manny Diaz love. Okay, Mm -hmm. and he said, oh, it's being figured out now. And 
I believe his reference was when you saw Michigan, a couple of those big third down plays. Was that somebody figuring out how to uh, how to battle Manny Diaz's defense? And mm-hmm. is this something other teams could say, oh, here's the model on how to attack it? So coming into this season, my question was, how is the Big Ten going to adjust to Manny Diaz? And how is Manny Diaz going to adjust to the Big Ten? You know, like that first year, there's a figuring out phase. And then they ended the year first in run defense, first in pass defense, first in tackle. Like, like they 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 were one of, if not the best defense in college football. And, you know, I don't know if I got all of those technical. I think they were third in uh, in pass defense. So sue me if, you know, nationally I get the difference between one and three mixed up. <laughs> no, yeah, the, nobody figured out Manny Diaz's defense to the point where they were giving up awful plays. Were there times that good teams got good plays against this defense? Yes. But if your bar is perfection, please just stop typing. Like, that's ridiculous. That the, you know, uh, (laughs) Michigan, and I understand because they won the game, the narrative is set in stone and no one's going to care listening to me describe that game. But Michigan refused to throw the football. They threw the football eight times, and that wasn't by choice. They couldn't throw the football because Penn State's defense was too good in pass protect in, in pass rush. Um, did they give up too many explosive plays uh, on the ground to win the game? Maybe by one or two, but they still kept the Penn State team in the game late into the fourth quarter, and the offense couldn't score any points. If Penn State has any game pressure from the offense, that game is entirely different. Like that, then Michigan has to throw the football, and you're opening yourself up to some, you know. Uh, touchdowns from Curtis Jacobs that were were nullified during the game uh, like they were against Ohio State when they had to throw the football against Penn State. So, no, uh, nobody figured out Manny Diaz's defense. The the point that the defense was losing ground in a, in a battle of attrition during the game. They were put in a position where they had to be perfect all year long, and they did it in all but two games. And even then, they did enough to win those games. The offense is what the issue was, which is why the offense coordinator was fired after the second one. I also gave Manny Diaz credit. He had a lot of talent on his defense, but it seemed like individual player player development was also good on the defensive side of the ball. We know about the stars, even the superstars on that team. But you saw improvement from players, even specifically at linebacker where Manny Diaz was at. You see Dom DeLuca becoming a major factor. In my opinion, Kobe King was really improved. Could you comment a bit about the development of the individual players along defense? And I understand positional coaches have a lot to do with that also. But you got to yeah. give some of the credit to Manny Diaz. Um, just from a statistical standpoint, I, I think that this speaks to what this defense was and how there was a lot of good players and nobody really, I think, dominated. You, Adisa Isaac had um, almost 10 sacks this year. He led the team with 31 pressures. And I wouldn't say he was the team's best pass rusher because they had one, two, three, four, four players with 20 plus pressures and then five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 players with 10 plus pressures. So yes, a lot of players contributed to this defense. It wasn't just the superstars. It wasn't just chop Robinson. They were deep and talented. And we talked about this coming into the year. This was the deepest and most talented defense we've seen from Penn state in a long time. Uh, The defensive tackles are going to be where I go to this conversation because I, 
<laughs> I, I, I have a hard time, Jim. I roll my eyes at the conversations we always have. Once we establish a, a narrative and then it becomes set in stone that everyone can repeat it, I tend to get like, okay, what's the next thing? Let's move on to the next thing. Let's find the next new uh, nuance to learn. And it was a fact that Penn State doesn't have good defensive tackles going into every single game, going into the Ohio State game, going into the Michigan game, going into the Iowa game. Were they going to be good enough to stop the run? And this group responded in a way that was definitive and emphatic, that they were good enough against the run and they were big enough and strong enough to play. And that goes to not just Deion Barnes, but the development of the defense, um, the style in which they used them. They understood their assignment and it put them in position to succeed because this is a this is a defense that uses aggression and athleticism. But you cannot have just aggression and athleticism. You need to have the strength to hold the point of attack once you get into your gap. Um, so I'd say the defensive tackles to me are the area of most positive growth in what you're talking about, but the linebackers for sure. I think they found the right way to use Abdul Carter by the end of the year where they took a little bit off his plate from a mental perspective, still asking him to do those things to be the guy they're setting the play up for, but not every play. And then, you know, the development of, of, uh, Kobe King, which you mentioned the way they use those guys became sort of interchangeable at the end of the season where one guy would set up for the other, the other guy would set up for uh, his teammate and they were um, both really smart, active run defenders by the end of the end of the season. So yeah, understanding the system um, continued to develop. And then there's always there. I should say always, there were two seasons of it. There was a Manny Diaz wrinkle that happened about mid season where they adjusted to what they have and what teams were doing to them. And this year it was starting out in a four man front having the ability to then walk Abdul Carter up to the line of scrimmage and suddenly you're in a five-man front. And using that versatility against teams to take away the run while still having pass uh, coverage ability. So yeah, I I think generally excellent coaching and that level of success that becomes fun because you can do a bunch of different stuff because everyone is on the same page. Okay, before we get on to potential replacements for Manny Diaz, inside, outside uh, the program. I'm going to ask you the kind of question that you don't like, okay? And Good. I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so Manny Diaz moves on to Duke. Mm-hmm. Good decision, good choice for Manny. Uh, we always talked about he was going to become a head coach. It was what program, what offer would be good enough for him to take. And what's your outlook for him in that job? So this actually, I don't hate this question. This is the the main question I have is, is, um, is being the, the head coach at Duke, a faster path to the top than one more season as the Penn state defensive coordinator doing something special. That's so if you look at where Penn state's, uh, coordinators have gone old dominion, uh, Marshall, uh, not necessarily coordinator, but a player that went on to be a head coach or uh, a staff member. Um, Mississippi State, Virginia Tech. How far away is Duke from those places? And Manny, with his previous head coaching experience, would he have been able to leapfrog that? So to me, like the conversation is always around the EST syndrome. What is the best place for you to go? What is the quickest path for you to get to the top? Because all of these hyper-competitive alpha male dudes want to win and they want to win at the highest level. 
And I'm assuming that's that's my mentality that I view this from, and that's I'm assuming their mentality. So I I understand that Manny wants to be a head coach, and more power to him if that's he wants to control his own destiny and be his own man at Duke. Entirely up to him. I think Duke is a good football program from a defensive standpoint that has done a lot of things that he does. I think it's a good a good fit. But would he get would he get a quicker path to those top programs? Let's just throw out some Florida's some, you know, other schools in the South that maybe he could have an opportunity to be head coach for and then compete for a national title um, in a quicker vein than if he were to stay at Penn State. To me, that's the only math. And to it, my initial knee-jerk reaction is it was a lateral move from a timeline perspective. But tell Michael Elko that. He was there for two years, and now he's at Texas A&M. So I don't know. I would say it's 50-50. I wouldn't say it was definitively a step forward. I want to follow up on that. When we get back, T. Frank in quarter two. Hey guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new coffee barbecue dry rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. It's quarter number two on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at keystonesportsnetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. He's T. Frank Carr. I'm Jim Galanti. We're talking Penn State football. More specifically, when we finished up T. Frank quarter number one, I was asking you about Manny Diaz's move to Duke. And I wanted to follow up on it because it was an interesting question that you put out there. How do you get to the top? How do you get to one of those elite jobs? Is it better come back another year at Penn State, where I think he would have, again, had a really good defense in 24 with the talent returning, yeah. with his abilities? Or do you get the head coaching job at Duke, and is that a better path to one of those top jobs? You mentioned mm-hmm. you know, he's from Florida. He coached at Miami. I thought the best opportunity, and potentially in another year it could be out there, I guess, is Florida a Southeast Conference right. a school, his home state, all the resources in the world. You know, they have high expectations. My question, though, is along that path is how many times do those kind of jobs open up? And this year, would you call Texas A&M one of those jobs? Yes, um, I think they open up more frequently okay so this is this is the thing uh i think that traditionally there are a handful of teams and a handful of schools and if we're going to be brutally honest here penn state is not in the group of teams that has an opportunity to compete for a national championship you know historically the record has been set over the last 25 30 years penn state has been in the national championship conversation a handful of times um and not really since 2000 and what in the early 2000s so it's not just a james franklin thing it is a penn state thing now they have the resources to become that program to get over the hump but as we've detailed long 
long shows, hours of internet film have been dedicated to, you know, Penn State getting over the hump. With a 12-team playoff, things change. You know, there's absolutely more latitude than there has been at any point in the history of college football to get to the playoff where anything can happen. Now, is it a massive jump like it is in the NCAA tournament? No, no, not like it is in basketball, but there is more room now. Are you positioning yourself to be in that conversation? Penn State is, right? So Penn State, um, if we were to finish the season uh, with projected outcomes, Penn State will either be one of the top 12 schools or just outside the top 12 schools this year, pending this bowl game and the final setup for whatever, right? Um, Duke is not in that situation. How many schools um, in uh, the SEC and the ACC have that opportunity going forward? So it's not just about now. It's about positioning yourself for the future. Um, Duke isn't that necessarily, but maybe... I'm looking at this with too narrow of a scope, right? So two years at Duke doing a great job, creating a great team. Does that open up for the opportunity for a top 15 program, not just a top 10 program? So I, I guess there's, I'm not, I don't know that I'm answering your question, but I think that there's a lot of, we don't know about the future of college football from a, um, uh, from a perspective of how many teams are realistically in the college football playoff championship hunt. Um, and the portal and what we've seen from the craziness this year of how NIL is affecting competitiveness. All of these things have to be factored in and, and and we'll see, you know, um, where Manny ends up in a couple of years because I have a hard time. And again, Duke keeps catching all kinds of strays in this conversation. It's good football pro it's turned into a good football program. Uh, but it's not on the level that you would expect Manny Diaz who's already been there to one of those schools that you could say in the modern landscape of football uh, had the opportunity to build into a, a winner. You know, I, I think the institutional part is all up for debate, you know, with the way their NIL is structured versus that's a private university. So they don't have, you know, some, they have some advantages and they have some disadvantages, but I would absolutely put them on the list of schools that have the potential to reach a college football playoff with 12 teams, you know, how do you get back to that as quickly as possible is the, is the mind and the path I'm expecting from Manny and, and one more season at Penn state versus potentially two, three at Duke. I don't know which is the shorter path to that destination. And that's part of the issue or the quandary in making a decision. If you're a Manny Diaz, those big jobs, where do they go to? And mm -hmm. the best example of the guy staying at a very good coordinator position, then moving to one of the elite programs, was the defensive coordinator at Clemson, who ended up being the head coach at Oklahoma. Yeah, Brett when Venables. Had, yep. Yes. And how long was he the coordinator at Clemson? And I'm sure he passed up a lot of head coaching jobs, perhaps a Duke-type job he passed up yeah. in waiting for an Oklahoma. But I'll throw this out there also. As a Duke head coach, I compare the job a little bit to the Kentucky coaching job, a traditional basketball school that you don't think of as being a contender for a national championship. Ironically, Stoops was rumored to be the guy at Texas A&M, going from Kentucky to A&M and getting that job. But in Kentucky... He's highly paid. 
He mm-hmm. wins enough games to go to bowl games. He's never going to win a Southeast Conference, probably, and he's probably never going to win a national championship, but he could probably have mm-hmm. job security there forever. I think Manny Diaz at Duke, he'll be paid as a head coach. Yeah. Probably, he's not going to have this, you know, job satisfaction. I think at Texas A&M, they just churn coaches. If you don't win and contend in a couple years, you're gone. At Duke, he could win 9, 10 games stay there forever the ACC yeah. might be a path to at least a conference championship and a playoff <laughs> or it might be gone in three years so that's <laughs> the thing the ACC might also be gone in three years who knows like it's, it, it, anything and everything is possible at this point yeah and, and so that's the you're making the point of do I want to be a head coach or do I want to win um and and that's to me the two parts of this conversation I'll just tell you how I'm wired I want to win. I don't like being a head coach. Yes, I want to be the head coach and win, but I want to win. I want to be uh, part of the conversation. How do I get to the highest point possible to, and I've, I've spent the, the entire show basically outlining this of how do I get to where I can win a national championship? I think, you know, James Franklin is wired that way. Brent Pry is wired that way. All of these coaches are hyper competitive people that are wired that way. If you just want to be a head coach, go coach high school or division two, or if you want to be a teacher and a leader of men and influence the life of these, these, these young men, you can do that without the pressure cooker of college football. Um, and I guess to be in the same arena as the highest levels of competition and theoretically aspire to those things and try to build Duke into a national championship, national power. If you look at like historically the non blue bloods that have become that over time, in modern college football, you had to establish your brand long ago and become a school that had the resources to compete at the highest level. Um, it's very hard to build that. Clemson is the one example you can say of a team that ne- wasn't necessarily a blue blood program that became that. And by the way, to button this up, Brett Venables was the D.C., uh, I think, for 10 years at Clemson. That was not going to happen with Manny Diaz. We're talking about the difference of one and three oh, yeah. years. So, yeah, the, the point of. The point of, I guess the point I'm driving at is how is Manny wired? What is most important to him? This conversation has come up with myself and Nate Bauer on our breaking news video we talked about. He said, what are you really looking for? And I never, ever considered anything other than how do you win? And then, you know, like you want to be a head coach, your own man, do blah, blah, blah. Yes, absolutely. I guess I don't consider it that way because I've been following college football in, in this particular way for so long that that's great but that's not what all these guys are trying to do. At least that's in my estimation. Well, and just to wrap it up from my perspective, those jobs at those elite programs do not open very often. And they don't necessarily open up for a coordinator. Oftentimes those really good jobs get inherited. You know, you see like Ryan day at Ohio state, he, he just happened to be in the right place when the head coach was gone. You know, it'd be like mm-hmm. if, if, if James Franklin moved on, Manny Diaz would have had a great opportunity to be the head guy at a, a school like Penn state. But anyway, let's move to the next logical step for Penn state, which is how do they go to fill this position? Do they go internal or external? We just went through this conversation a couple weeks ago on the offensive side of the ball. My take on the offense was they wanted a change. They didn't want the offense to look like it did 
the last two years. Yeah. On defense, I think they would love the defense to look like it did the last two years. Are they better mm-hmm. off uh, going outside, T. Frank, or going internal? So I can't sit here for the first 15 minutes of the show and praise Manny Diaz for his football mind, for his character, the way that uh, players flocked to him as a leader, and then not acknowledge that losing that loses to me the secret sauce of the defense. And I've heard this. Anthony Poindexter is the guy that everyone wants to be the internal hire to be the next defensive coordinator because uh, UVA almost hired him as a head coach. Also because he's an excellent coach. I think I, I am a proponent of him having an opportunity at the job as well. Same with Terry Smith, who's been with Penn State since the very beginning of James Franklin's career. Also an excellent coach and somebody that players absolutely love. J- uh, Pat Kraft said this during uh, the Peach Bowl press conference on Monday. He encourages his coaches to think big bigger than maybe they had thought previously um, during different decades at Penn state, some coded language of we've got the money to spend, go get the player, go get the coach to win. So are Anthony Poindexter and uh, Terry Smith, the best possible defensive coordinators in America. Cause that's the bar from what I'm reading and what I'm understanding from Penn state, it's going to be a national search. This is the other thing I'm going to caution people for, and they're not going to listen to me, but saying to Anthony Poindexter, hey, do the Manny Diaz thing. Just do what Manny did. Just do what Manny did. We're going to hire the defense coordinator. We're going to copy and paste. A photocopy is not an original. There, there, And I think that sets him up to fail. I think that sets up any coordinator, unless he's you know somehow already proven that he's got the same spark of creativity and genius, that you're not allowing him to create his own thing. So I, I would expect if Anthony Poindexter is hired as a defense coordinator, my hope would be, it would be do your thing. Don't try to be Manny, do your thing. What you got from Manny, you can try and replicate certain things, but the secret sauce is Manny Diaz and that's out the door. So create the next thing that is very good defense at Penn state. And that's what the next defensive coordinator should do. Not try to be Manny Diaz. Very good T Frank. We're going to pick up that conversation quarter number four, because I'm one of those guys you were talking to with that conversation. But first, I figured quarter <laughs> quarter three, we've got your questions for T Frank. Stay tuned for that. Hey guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club here to talk to you about our new coffee barbecue dry rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. Let's get back to the action on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. It's quarter number three. That means it's time to ask T. Frank. We're taking your questions for T. Frank and, of course, we expect the perfect answers from T. Frank. If you want to submit a question to them, here's what you need to do. Go to our app, Keystone Sports, download it. You'll see the Ask T. Frank button. Send in your question. That's all there is to it. And before I get a lot of response to this, T. Frank, 
We don't have a prize for the best question this week. We'll work on. I know. I know. It's okay. I look at it. Giving out a prize like every day since uh, the beginning of time. So one week. Yes. It's It's all right. Well, we're we're gonna uh, work it out. We'll probably we'll get this back on track again with the prize. But I look at it this way: T. Frank answering one of your questions should be reward enough. Okay, we'll look at it that way. Let's start with our buddy Steve from Potomac. Now, just to remember, a reminder: Steve is our negative Nelly, uh, T. Frank. Okay, so yep, take that before we start. And Steve says, why should we be confident that the new offensive coordinator will work out? The last guy from the Big 12 that Franklin wanted was a bust and entered with a lot of hype. And other than Moorhead, who was forced on Franklin, the other OCs have been underwhelming. If the offense is still underperforming in two years, does Penn State look beyond Franklin since his buyout will be lower? For those on the radio... You can't see that I have fully leaned in to the arm on the desk in a defeated and sort of fatigued position. Um, Steve, you want James Franklin to be fired as the head coach at Penn State. So just center your question around that. <laughs> like, just said, just just say that. Obviously, you just said that. But like, that's that's your problem. And I'm, yes, we, we we've we, well, we know. Let me interrupt um, for a second. There there are a lot of people who think like Steve. That yes. The no, there are. That Penn State has. It's it's on James Franklin. They are not elite yeah. because of James Franklin. And that's really right. the question. Yeah. Um, I don't have an answer for you there um, because, you know, the only way to find out, I guess you're right, is to remove that variable. Let's talk about Andy Koltenicki, though. Um, yes, there are similarities between him and Mike Yersich in terms of uh, what they do schematically on the football field. And I this is why when I when I first went to break down uh, his film, I didn't look at just Kansas because I know that they're the, the negative Nellies out there that want to dismiss any idea are going to point to, look, another Big 12 offensive coordinator. By the way, Jim Knowles, also from the Big 12, um, and he had a pretty good defense this year at Ohio State. So you can't just, and defense is terrible in, in the Big 12. That's the whole point. So we can't dismiss individuals because of the their, their environments and ecosystems. I, but I went all the way back to Buffalo to look at the things that Colton Nicky has done in his offense. Um, and he has produced explosive plays at both stops with inferior talent. Um, Will it work? I can't tell you that. I can't give you guarantees. As I always say, if you want absolutions, get religion. Like this is football. There are no guarantees. But from a perspective of the run game, he is a creative individual that will use a bunch of different techniques to get players space. Um, He uses options and uh, other secondary sort of play augmentations in a creative way to create space, both in the run and the pass. But more to the point, I think of what Penn State's really getting here is they are getting a teacher. They are getting a communicator and they're getting in, in those ways, the exact opposite of Mike Yersich, James Franklin detailing all the things about this through positives about Mike Yersich was didn't communicate, was not a team player from a, uh, his, what his job was, 
allowing input into the offense, allowing communication, having an efficient working uh, philosophy of how to generate offense from a process standpoint of getting everyone on the same page, everyone having the same uh, understanding of what happens in certain situations. Having done a deep dive on Andy Koltanicki, that's where he starts. And then the play philosophy scheme stuff is not secondary, but is is in concert with. It's not scheme drives us. It's how do we put our players in the position to succeed through coaching and scheme. So from that perspective, Penn State is getting a guy that I think a lot of people believe in. I'm glad you brought that up, T. Frank, because I was going to also. It's not that the... Mike Yursich and his schemes or the things that his similarities that Steve brought up between Kotal Nicky and Mike Yursich, I don't think those were the issues with Mike Yursich. There was a lot of other stuff going on. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, here's, I'm interested in your answer to this question, uh, T. Frank. This is Edward from Reutersford who says, T. Frank, how would you make use of Bo Prabula? Would you do two quarterback mm-hmm. sets? Would you use them in short yardage situations? Would you use them red zone? Would you use them as a changeup to Aller for a full possession? Just exactly how would T. Frank make best use of Bo Perbola? Um, You're not going to like my answer is I wouldn't make a whole lot of use of Bo Perbola. I would probably be on the Mike Yersich side of things where I, the red zone makes the most sense. Where... Here, Okay, so let's step back and let's assess the problems instead of, you know, some of the some of the solutions first. Right. So the problem is the run game is stuck because the passing game is anemic. And to me, if we're saying let's play Bo Perbula and I had a conversation with a relative of mine and he was uh, when I went home for a Christmas a holiday thing this weekend. And the first thing he said was, I don't know, Bo, Bo Perbula makes a lot of plays with his legs. Looks like he's a great fit for the offense. Maybe he should be playing. If you have a Ferrari, learn to drive the Ferrari. Don't just get into the truck because it feels familiar. And Drew Aller is a Ferrari. So if you want me to tell you how I'm going to use Bo Perbula, I'm going to say fix the offense so Drew Aller can run it. And then use Bo Prabula to fill in the gaps um, where Aller doesn't have the same strengths of running in, uh, you know, short yardage situations. I would absolutely put Bo Prabula into the T formation. I would take Aller off the field. He's a good enough passer that you can use him in the T formation in short yardage in every one of those situations that he can throw or be a dangerous runner. Um, so I guess really, honestly, I would use him the same way that James Franklin uh, and his staff used in the final two games of the year, like as a supplement to the passing game working because that's going to get you where you want to go. That cures all of your problems because putting Bo into the offense doesn't fix the passing game. It just gives you a temporary relief in the run game. But if you're using the quarterback run too much, that is a crutch. Your offense is not healthy. If your quarterback is running all the time it means you are still a limited offense that does not have the upper end ability to compete for a national championship. And again, I told you, Jim, I have EST syndrome. I'm looking for how do we get to the highest point with any given uh, set of variables. And your Bo could be that guy. He could develop into a passer. But the way that James Franklin and his staff has treated him, that is not the case. You know, Aller's the better passer. Fix the offense so that Aller can use it. And then let Bo Prabula fill in those gaps. And if he's a good enough passer, eventually he can replace Aller as a starting quarterback. I actually do like the answer, T. Frank, and to continue with your analogy, even if I have a Ferrari, there are times that truck would come in handy 
and you gave yes. us the situation yes. where the truck would come in handy. In that, by the way, a Ford F one fifty or whatever, Jim, like a, like a really nice truck is still a great mode of transportation. It is still something that people can be jealous of, but it's orders of magnitude here. That's all. If I've got to haul something, I want the truck, not the Ferrari. Okay. Yeah. The rest of the time, I'll take the Ferrari. Let's go to Henry in Wayne. Doesn't say if it's Wayne, New Jersey or Wayne, Pennsylvania. Anyway, Henry says, can you give me your tight end scouting report if both Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren are gone next year? I mean, this is the deepest position on the offense. It's probably the deepest position on the entire team. Even counting defensive end this year. Uh, Khalil Dinkins is going to be, uh, I think, an H. He's going to be the H-back um, where he can play both positions, but he's more of a receiver. I think he's got dynamic receiving skills where he can run really good routes, intermediate and deep. My question will be, how good of a blocker can he be? Not just how much can he block compared to where he was before. And then Andrew Rapelier is a potential superstar. Uh, eventually, like uh, along his timeline. I think he can be a complete tight end. He can play Y. He can play H back. You'll have that interchangeability there. Um, he is tenacious. Watching him block, he does not care. He loves throwing his body against other guys and dominating at the line of scrimmage. So strength and technique are going to have to get there. But uh, as far as the potential for the position, great. Jerry Cross, super high ceiling, has been inconsistent. I would say, in my estimation, maybe he got passed by Andrew Rapelier this year. Um, injuries have been a part of that as well for him during his time at Penn State and even before then. And then you're bringing in Luke Reynolds, who is a Mike Gesicki adjacent type of player with just dynamic, explosive down the field, um, contested catch abilities. And you also have Joey Schlaffer, who is six foot six, can fill out to be a true wide tight end, maybe more in a Theo Johnson type mold, but also, you know, a primary receiver. So they're deep, they're talented. It's going to be about competition and who rises to the top, but the options are excellent. Um, and I, I don't think they're a shortage of talent at tight end. Even if Theo Johnson plays in this game, I would expect to see more of Dinkins and more of Rappelier as a, you've earned this this year with your play. Uh, to get them into the game as well. You've got me excited about next year in the tight end play, T. Frank. Uh, it sounds sounds promising. All right, let's go to Ned in Quakertown. He says, hey, T. Frank, what do you think are our biggest needs in the portal? Is it wide mm -hmm. receiver or bust? I also wonder about cornerback if King, Dixon, and Hardy are all gone. I mean, you know, uh, let me just throw in tackle. Um, Alan Heron committed to the Nittany Lions. I don't think that prevents you from going and getting another guy because he is a pro he is a project player. He got a lot better. There's first off, there's very little film on him. And, you know, I've seen as much as I can possibly find on the Internet. And I have access to more than the average bear. And I still can't find a ton of division to shorter offensive line film. Um, but what I've seen, you know, he's going to be added into the tackle mix. Uh, but you would still love to have a portal tackle with experience that can come in and play if Caden Wallace moves on, which I think is the odds on likelihood. Uh, you know, I think he did enough this year that he's a draftable player and can go as a middle round project offensive lineman potentially moving inside. So I think his future is secure. Wide receiver is absolutely the thing. 
If you could find a number one wide receiver to bring onto your team and fix the balance issues on this team, they've got talent at the position, but they don't have a whole lot of fixes. And then corners, absolutely something they would like for experience, but they have more talent, I would say, there than they do at the other positions. Very good, T. Frank. That is it for Ash T. Frank. Stick around. We got more to talk about in quarter number four. Hey, guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new coffee barbecue dry rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are. We headed to the home stretch in quarter number four on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Brought to you by the Keystone Sports Network. Get the best Penn State sports news and analysis at KeystoneSportsNetwork.com or download the Keystone Sports app from your smartphone. Hello and welcome back to the Keystone Kickoff Show. It is quarter number four. He's T. Frank. I'm Jim. T. Frank, I wanted to pick up our discussion from quarter number two when we were talking about the replacement for Manny Diaz and Mm -hmm. you were quoting Pat Kraft talking about essentially aim high, get the very best you can. And typically you wouldn't think of, okay, the very best defensive coordinator available in the country is on your own staff. It's probably outside somewhere in that bigger population. But here's my counter to that. And I just want your reaction to it, which is, Again, on the offensive side of the ball, I get it. You wanted a change. You wanted the offense to look different than it has looked the last two years. On defense, I want the defense to look as much like it did the last two years as possible. You've got a lot of the same players who are are familiar with this system. Mm -hmm. And my take on it, and, and again, it's an opinion, but I would think Poindexter having been in the system these last two years with Manny Diaz would know the system pretty well from Manny Diaz. Yeah. He might want to change a few things, tweak it a bit, but if I'm James Franklin, I'm saying, you know what? Essentially it ain't broke. I don't want to fix it. Yeah. I, but is it, this is the question. This is, this is the point is, can you keep it going? Um, because let's talk about what, when Manny Diaz's defense didn't work when he was the head coach. And I would say they didn't necessarily have the talent to do it at the end. So there was a transition period. He was very good early on at Miami. And then when it became his team and he was the head coach and there's some attrition on the defensive side of the ball, it started to wane a little bit. And let's remember where we were before Manny Diaz came to Penn State, where he was a fired head coach. Things did not go well. His last season wasn't great. And part of the problem was, Jim, the defense was giving up gobs of explosive plays. So I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm trying to provide Penn State fans who want to take the shortest path back to where they were with a cautionary tale. This defense is great when it's good, but. It also gives up a ton of explosive plays if it's not done properly. And again, at Miami that final year, they gave up tons of big plays. The corners were not necessarily as instinctive as the ones that were at Penn State. They weren't getting the same amount of pressure. 
Um, you know, I don't know if Manny was calling the defense or not, so I can't speak to that part, but there was something that was definitely missing from 2019 Miami when he was the defensive coordinator to 2021 or whatever it was, 22, 21, where he was the head coach. So is Anth- where on that scale is Anthony Poindexter running Manny Diaz's defense? Because that's what everyone has been saying. It's not that they want Anthony Poindexter to be the defensive coordinator. It's that they want to find a way to find Manny Diaz's shadow should be the defensive coordinator is kind of how it, it feels. And I'm just, I want to provide the cautionary tale that this defense, it's, it's not that we, I was, it's, it's not that we were wrong. It's that it was so good that it wasn't the things that it could have been. It can still be given up 70 yard touchdowns quite often. Look at the Indiana game when it wasn't run with the correct, with the correct communication where there's just these busted coverages for 70 yards because you're putting these guys in position where they have to be right, they have to communicate because the the last line of defense is the line of defense. So Anthony Poindexter, does he have the ability to call Manny Diaz's defense, not just from here's the schemes, here's what we do, but also the game day intuition of I need to call this play at this time. Manny Diaz blitzed two corners on a play this year. He blitzed the slot corner and the bounder and the field corner at the same time and got an interception out of it. A lot of times you blitz a corner and you give up 30 yards. It's just like there are, there's a secret sauce here. And I just, again, the, the word of caution is that it is not an automatic given that uh, for example, Ricky Ronnie can run Joe Moorhead's offense. When you have these specific systems, when you have, it is a lot of it tied to the mind of the person who created it. And maybe there's been enough time to learn it. Maybe there has been, but maybe there hasn't. Two years is not as much time as you think. That's, I guess, from my perspective, um, to learn something that has as many intricacies as it does, that um, two years is not, I would say, the time to learn the full breadth of how this works, how to change things about it, and how to adjust going forward. So, you know, I, I, those, those are my concerns hiring Anthony Poindexter to be the defensive coordinator Manny Diaz was and not Anthony Poindexter, the defensive coordinator, he will be on his own. And my counter to it is you also have the players who have now been in the system for two years. And I think in the second year with Manny Diaz, they did better than they did in the first year. A lot of that being just their experience in it. And if you have mm-hmm. high hopes for the 24 season, you run two risks if you bring in someone from outside who brings in a new system. First of all, bringing in a new coordinator, as we've learned on the other side of the ball, is no guarantee also. Yeah. And number two, what you will then be doing is asking these players to learn a new system. Now, that happens all the time, but there are yeah. some risks that go along with that also. I I get the argument on both sides. I really do. And what this will come down to is James Franklin's ability to hire. Is it, as you asked it, is Anthony Poindexter ready to do that? And by the way, you use the car analogy, Drew Allers a Ferrari. I think this defense is also a Ferrari, okay? Yeah. And you probably need a pretty special driver to get it to its peak performance. And that yeah. now it becomes a judgment call on James Franklin's part. Is Anthony Poindexter the best driver for this? Uh, yeah, for this Ferrari. And, and there are, I, I do want to say, like you can keep a similar defense, right? So Anthony Poindexter, I don't believe at any point has been his own defensive coordinator. So sure, you'll be keeping a lot of the same uh, verbiage. You'll be keeping a lot of the same plays. You'll be keeping a lot of the same stuff. 
But I guess my point is don't ask him to be Manny Diaz. If he runs this defense, allow him to run it more conservatively if he wants to. Allow him to lean on his strengths of, hey, we are going to do X and Y with the secondary, and maybe we won't focus on the defensive line as much. You know, whatever his strengths are. I'm making up hypotheticals here. I, I just think it's super unfair when this happens, when you take a guy and you say, we are going to run this defense the exact same way because we want the exact same results. This is the whole point of like, this is what makes guys special. This is what makes great play callers what they are. And it has to be revealed through time if Anthony Poindexter is that guy. Conversely, you bring in somebody that has proven experience as a high-level defensive coordinator. Let me give you an example, and I, I've been back and forth on whether he would fit at Penn State or not, uh, but Tom Allen of Indiana. Would James Franklin be interested in bringing in another former head coach who has proven that he can do special things within his particular system? And if you're looking for the secret sauce, the special thing, you know, I think if you've seen or you heard me talk about Tom Allen's defense on the show routinely, I am always amazed at what they do in coverage, how they do it, and the process where the defensive backs are always, they always seem to be locked in, super aware, not just of their assignment, but the concept that they're running. Why are we doing what we're doing? And that gives you an next level awareness to play with your eyes and get interceptions and create havoc plays. That's something that could fit Penn State. I don't know. I, you know, James Franklin's going to have to make the determination if Tom Allen's defense, which can be kamikaze at a certain point, even more so than Manny Diaz, if that's a fit for Penn State. I guess that's the part to me is we we haven't seen Tom Allen's defense without a with a with a pass rush in a while. So what does it look like when it has the resources at Penn State? Kind of like Andy Kotelnicki with his run game. He's had to scheme around not having good interior offensive lineman. What does he want to do at Penn State? Like, what are the actual things of, I have every resource, I'm going to run X scheme with these players, et cetera. You know, what does Tom Allen look like at Penn State versus what he had to do at Indiana? And those are the areas where, you know, if, if you're, you're saying, does he fit, does he not fit? I don't know. And this is, it's unfair. It sounds like I'm, I'm, pro I'm promoting uh, him. It's just the one that I know the best of the options. It's the one that I've seen the most. So it's an example of Anthony Poindexter running Manny Diaz's defense versus a defensive coordinator that has a proven system and scheme coming in and implementing that and becoming the next guy. And I, you know, I, I think that there's merit on both sides. Personally, I would say I want the guy that has a proven play calling experience, but I also think Poindexter's great. Like, you know, they're, you're in a good position where you have good in-house candidates. Terry Smith is an excellent defensive mind. So, you know, Penn State's got good options. And a point still has to be made that even if Manny Diaz were back, you might have a very different defense. We know Chop Robinson yeah. won't be there. Who else won't be there? Might it be no Kalen King and no Johnny Dixon and no Daquan Hardy, which changes that whole defensive backfield? And whoever yep. comes in, whether internal, external, or Manny Diaz returning, may have to deal with that. All right, T. Frank, we've got a couple minutes left. Penn State brought in their first guy from the portal, Alan Heron. He's a tackle mm -hmm. from, of all places, Shorter University, 6'6", six, six, yeah. two years of eligibility. What can you tell us about him? Well, the first thing I want to do, Jim, is I I, I want to help you out because uh, I've been in this position before where there's a thing we have to get to and forgot to get to. We didn't get to the winner from Ask T. Frank. So I wanted to just say 
Stephen Potomac, here's my olive branch to you. I was I was giving you some flack earlier. I hope we're playing around here. You're our winner today. Uh, so I just want your your question is the big question. Can Penn State win with James Franklin? But your question was veiled as why should we like anything James Franklin does at all? So I just want to say, I, you know, I think you 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 have some points to make. Um, so you're our winner today. But yeah, and Alan Heron, um, project player. And then the project timeline is TBD. Um, I watched as much film as I could find of him. He is athletic. I don't think he's got a lot of bad weight to get rid of. So I think he could, when he gets in the Penn State weight program, if things go well, accelerate his development and be a playable player. He can be a player that participates in 2024. But from a technique standpoint, there are some things I saw on film that I don't like, but it's such an incomplete picture that I can't really say like, oh, he's going to take two years to develop because he see all of these things on film that he needs to correct before he's a good football player. So um, good athlete. There's a reason that five or six power five teams, including Miami and Clemson were after him. Um, but the project is how quickly can he get up to speed to compete with guys that are young, but very talented because he's a tackle. You know, I think he is good enough to play the, the at tackle at Penn state uh, down the line. If he, can clean up some of his technique and some of his uh, football awareness, I'd say. And very quickly, you Dame Steve the winner on a week when there's no prize, uh, T. Frank. Very big <laughs> Don't give you. up All my right. game. <laughs> <laughs> that is it for the show. Thank you, T. Frank, and thank all of you for listening. Make sure you join us next time on the Keystone Kickoff Show. Hey guys, this is Andrew from 409 Tailgate Club, here to talk to you about our new coffee barbecue dry rub set. Over the years, we've developed some great tailgate sauces and barbecue dry rubs, but our new coffee rubs are totally unique spice blends, low in sodium, and feature Happy Valley's finest coffee, W.C. Clark's, roasted right in the cheese shop in downtown State College. So head on over to 409tailgateclub.com, grab yourself some coffee rubs, and remember, always tailgate with honor. We are.